This is the word of the Lord from 2 Thessalonians three fourteen through 18. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person. Don't associate with him so that he may be ashamed. Yet don't consider him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, am writing this greeting with my own hand, which is an authenticating mark in every letter. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. I like it. That nine o'clock group forgot what I was all about, man. They were just like, yeah, whatever. You guys are doing well, I hope. Good. I also told the uh, nine o'clock service that, uh, so my uh, sermon notes were uploaded on the website sometime this week. Um, and I told the first service, but I, I, I'm going to throw all of those out. Uh, I was reading a book on the, on the airplane on the way in. And so uh, I've got something completely different. That's not a hundred percent true, but I was reading a book on the airplane on the way, uh, flying up here. And, um, I was struck by this uh, quote, uh, and we're going to talk about that here in a few minutes, and I think that it's uh, paramount for understanding um, uh, everything that we're going to talk about today. So as is our tradition, my name is Steve, by the way. Thanks. I don't think I said it. Uh, I am the elder in absentia around here, which is a fancy way of saying that I live in Phoenix, and, uh, or the surface of the sun, whichever you want to however you want to look at that. But as is our tradition, uh, when I uh, speak in front of all of you, I want you to uh, put your feet flat on the floor now, and I want you to sit up straight, put your hands in your laps. I want you to take a few deep breaths in through the nose and out through the mouth. I want you to come to a place in your mind and in your heart where you know that we are here to worship the God of the universe. And so we're going to sit in silence for a moment, uh, knowing uh, and receiving the promise that he said, where any two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in your midst. Father, we are so grateful that your son Jesus died on the cross for us, shed his blood for us, that we might um, forever be with you, that our sins would be forgiven by his sacrifice. Lord, we just pray now that as we uh, are meeting here together in your name, uh, we have sung uh, your praises, we have worshiped you in that way. Now, Lord, we worship you with the reading of your word and the study of your scripture. Lord, we just pray that you would quiet our hearts and our minds. Help us to focus our attention on you, creating in ourselves where you are the center of our lives. Father, change us. Make us more like you as a result of us meeting here together in your name. And we say these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Uh, I, we're wrapping up um, our series today on First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, the elders uh, saw to it that I got the most difficult, complicated, controversial subject in both books and said, hey, wrap this up for us. Now, you don't know what the title is? I'll tell you. The title of today's sermon is Church Discipline. Yeah, many of you, when I said that word, uh, just began to cringe. Perhaps you've come from a tradition where church discipline was uh, not only encouraged, but it was used uh, weekly and as um, violently as possible. Perhaps you have no idea about anything about church discipline because you didn't grow up in church and you don't know anything about that. Perhaps you've been wounded or harmed by a church that used it inappropriately, wielding it um, as a weapon for disgrace. Well, today I hope that we have an opportunity to um, dispel some of the rumors, maybe take some of the thorns off of this, and help you understand that church discipline not only is a necessary part of church and body life, but it's actually helpful and beneficial to all of us. The reason I said that I uh, read a book on the plane and I'm through the whole thing out, that's not really true, but I did read the book. There's a quote in here, and I think this is where we need to start our conversation, which is a definition of the church. And this will become more apparent uh, as we go through the study on why I think it's necessary for us to start and begin with a definition of the church. So this is a book uh, by a a fellow named Nathan Knight, who's a pastor out in Washington, D.C., And this is the definition that he gives, as soon as I find my eyeballs, of the church. The church is a covenanted group of Christians that gathers regularly together to hear the preaching of the gospel and affirm one another's membership in the gospel and in Christ's body through baptism and the Lord's Supper while protecting the gospel and that body through church discipline. Now, there's a lot of definitions of the church out there. uh, And maybe you've read it. Maybe you research that on a regular basis. How many of you have Googled within the past week definition of church? Just me. Awesome. Most of us don't even really think about that. It's so ingrained in our culture what church is. As a matter of fact, you probably had conversations about church this morning and exactly what it is. You might have had conversations while you were yelling at your children. I mean, firmly getting them to get dressed and ready to go to church, right? And you may have said, hey, let's go to church. Are we going to church today? What church are we going to? Let's go to church, right? And we talk that way. And is there anything wrong with us talking that way? Probably not. But it does lead to us having a misunderstanding of what church is. You see, we think about church as this building. Or we think about church as this location or this place or this event, this meeting, this Sunday morning, we're going to church. But on Tuesday night, we're going to go to community group, not church. Ooh. See what I mean? That's the way we think and talk about church. It happens inside these four walls at this moment. But church is not that. Church is us. 
We are the church. This body of believers, and we say it all the time, but we don't function in action and act like it because we don't understand that the ordinances of the, of the, of the church were given to the, the ordinances of Christ were given to the church. You guys know the ordinances? That's the Lord's Supper, which we take weekly, and baptism, which we celebrate as often as we possibly can. Church discipline falls into that because if we allow ourselves to run amok and do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want, we cease being the church and we begin to live our lives like those folks in the Old Testament where it said they did what was right in their own eyes. And that's not what we're called to do and that's not what we're called to be. We're a body of believers that regularly gather together to share the gospel, spread the gospel, and remember that the gospel applies to us not just one time in our life, but every single day of our life. And as a result of that, church discipline is necessary. Now, I will tell you the word and the term and, and the thought process has a lot of baggage. It goes back many, many years and hopefully you, don't have, you are not carrying any of that baggage. Hopefully. If you are, you'll hear a little bit about how church discipline uh, today in this, in, as I teach, you'll hear about how church discipline has been misapplied. But you'll also hopefully hear the heart behind church discipline, which comes right from scripture, the purpose of it, how it should be done and how we move forward with it. Hopefully that's what you'll find out. Here's the big picture that I want you to grab though for the whole entire day is this. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings restoration, and unity. We're going to talk in detail about this comment later on, but as we talk about church discipline, I want to begin here. Have you ever had to have a difficult conversation with someone? Whether that was a spouse or a child, maybe you're in management in uh, your place of business and you have a team that you work with and you have to have a hard conversation with that person to make sure that they're Uh, doing the right thing and heading in the right direction and, and all of those kinds of things. If you've ever had to have those conversations, I don't know about you, I don't thrive on those conversations. I don't wake up in the morning and go, ooh, I get to have to have a difficult conversation with this guy or that guy or this gal or that gal. I don't like it. You don't like it. You don't like to have those hard conversations with your family. You don't like to have those with the kids, with the spouse. Nobody likes to have hard conversations. Hard and difficult conversations are not called easy conversations. They're called difficult conversations. And the reason they're called difficult is because they're difficult. They're not easy, right? Nobody likes to have those. But when we give them, and I don't know about you, maybe this is just the way my brain is wired and I'm a little off center. But when I know that I have to have a difficult conversation with somebody, I'm hoping that you'll understand this and I'm hoping that there's someone else in the room whose brain works this way also. I know that conversation is coming. I know what I want to say to them, but I want to say it well to them. So I begin to rehearse that in my mind. I begin to think about how they're going to respond to me. And it's always going to be negative And it's going to be the worst possible response I could possibly ever hear. So then I think through all of the different ways to respond to every bad thing that they're going to, you know, kick back at me and how they're going to fight me in this conversation. And I get myself all worked up. And then I go and I have the conversation and the person goes, oh, okay. That's fine. And I've wasted all of this time and energy and effort and all of this emotional expense on something that never was going to come to fruition in the first place. 
Sometimes when you have that conversation, it's exactly like you planned it. They do fight you. They do push against you. They do argue. They do debate. They do get all of those things. But for the most part, especially like in the workplace, as an example, employees typically genuinely want to do a good job. And a lot of times when they're not doing a good job, it's because they're unaware. Occasionally, there are those folks that are just, you know, malicious and want to see the world burn. That happens. Now, when we think about this and everyone in the room has either been a part of a difficult uh, conversation in the workplace or given a difficult conversation in the workplace or known about somebody even. You've had those conversations in your home, with your family, with your wife, with your children, with uh, extended family relatives. We've all had these conversations. And I I, I wanna uh, present something to you is that if you think that difficult conversations are supposed to happen in the workplace, Difficult conversations are supposed to happen in the family. Why in the world would we ever think that difficult conversations aren't supposed to happen in the context of the church? Which is a family. Right? We have to have difficult conversations. Uh, In the the last passage here of 2 Thessalonians, which we're going to look at now, uh, Paul has just finished up talking about idle Christians and busybodies. If you heard last Sunday's sermon by Pastor John about idle Christians and busybodies, he did a great job explaining uh, how all of that worked in the context of uh, the city here in Thessaloniki and the way that those guys did their thing, right? So Paul here at the end of that, talking about busybodies and idle Christians, he makes some pretty definitive statements that we have to deal with. And when we're talking about difficult conversations, what we're having this morning is a difficult conversation because I'm going to say some things to you and you're going to not be happy about what I'm going to say. When I say those things and you feel a certain way and and you're unhappy with me, I want you to understand that I'm not making it up. I just read it out of the Bible. So feel free to be angry. Feel free to be upset. Feel free to think that I'm wrong, but don't feel free to think that scripture is wrong. You follow me? It's going to be good. Let's talk about the process of church discipline. Verse number 14. Here's what Paul writes. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Verse 15 says, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Here comes our first tough stuff. The first thing he says is identify that person that is disobedient. Now we're going to talk here in a few moments about the process that Jesus laid out for us on how to uh, deal with sin uh, that we run into and that we see in other people. Uh, But I want you to understand here that Paul says, I want you to take note of this person. Take note of this person. This is an illustration that I did not use in the first service that I'm using now. So feel lucky. When someone is, um, oh, let's see, how can I tell you what they are? Let me just use myself as an example. Uh, A long, long, long time ago, I was in the army. And one of the things that I learned while I was in the army is to always be aware of my um, environment. I used to, I don't do this so much anymore, but I definitely used to. When we went into a restaurant, my back was against the wall and I saw every exit 
I paid attention to everything that was going on. And when somebody shady or weird came in, I made note of that person. Did I aggressively attack them? No, that would have been odd and illegal. (laughs) But did I make a note of them, keep my eye on them, pay attention to what they were doing? Yeah. Paul is telling us here, when you see somebody, and he explains exactly what they are, these are people that do not obey what was written in this letter. Now, we're going to take the, the, Paul's statements about the church, the, this letter, 2 Thessalonians, and we're going to extrapolate that in into the whole of Scripture. Take note of somebody that is not obeying what the Scripture says. Make note of them. Secondly, he says, have nothing to do with them. Now, I read in another translation or another translation of one of the, the, the Greek words in this uh, sentence here uh, says this, uh, do not mix it up with them. I like that translation. Now, some of you may think mixing it up means, hey, we're going to mix it up, man. But the context here is don't mix it up with them means don't make them a part of who you are. Don't entangle your lives with them. That's what don't mix it up with them means. Paul writes here and he he makes a very definitive statement. And this is where some of you are going to start feeling a little shaky about what I'm about to say. But I'm only saying what it says right here. He said, identify that person, person, take note of them. Have nothing to do with them. Now, I don't know about you guys. Do you know what the word nothing means? I looked it up in the dictionary. It means exactly what it says. Nothing to do with them. This is a hard word. And I'm going to tell you why it's a hard word in in a modern context of things. Is what Paul is saying is I really want you to have nothing to do with these people. This person who has decided not to obey scripture. This person who has been confronted compassionately according to the way that Jesus instructed us to do so has decided that repentance is not something that they are about and they do not care. They're going to continue to do what they want to do regardless of what scripture says. Paul says, have nothing to do with them. Now in the context of our modern church, as we all talked about early, if earlier, if you're defined the church as what happens inside this room on Sunday morning, it's easy to have nothing to do with that person. They probably won't come anyway, right? But what he is saying is have nothing to do with them, meaning don't have anything to do with them here, don't have anything to do with them in a community group, Don't have anything to do with them in a personal relationship. Don't have anything to do with them as far as a barbecue is concerned or a pool party or any of those things. He is saying, have nothing to do with them. Now, some of you are are like, ooh, I don't know. How are we supposed to share the gospel with them? How are we supposed to fix this? How are we supposed to do all of these things if I don't have anything to do with them? He said, have nothing to do with them that they may be ashamed. The purpose of having nothing to do with them is so that it will open their eyes 
so that they will see that what they were doing was incorrect. They will repent and they can be restored. I'm just going to be honest with you. If someone is in this position and you decide, I'm going to do exactly what Paul said, I'm going to have nothing to do with them, except we're still going to get together uh, every Thursday night with our kids and we're going to be in the bowling league together and we're going to do all of those kinds of things. You know what has a tendency to happen in those areas and in those times? That person has a tendency to begin to speak gossip, division, and backbiting into your mind and into your heart, and then you begin to think the same thing that they begin to think, and the next thing you know, you've got nothing but trouble. That's why he says, have nothing to do with them. That's tough. That's a hard word. Here's the third thing he says. Don't regard them as an enemy. The idea here is that they're not the bad guy, and that's not what we're saying. We're not regarding them as an enemy. This is where we get into trouble. We note that person. They've sinned against us. We make it personal. We begin to view them as our adversary, and we miss out on the major purpose of the process of church discipline. Remember the, pro, remember the purpose of church discipline is restoration. That's the process. Here's what Jesus said about the process. So in Matthew chapter 16, just to give you a little background here, in Matthew chapter 16, uh, Jesus has a conversation with uh, Simon. And he says, Simon, who do people say that I am? And he goes through the whole thing. And then he says, Simon, who do you say that I am? Simon says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, that's right. And man didn't reveal that to you. God himself revealed that to you. And I'm going to call you Peter, the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. And uh, that's how he sets it up and establishes it. In 18, chapter 18, just two chapters later, Christ knowing that when I get a group of people together, there's going to be problems and there's going to be troubles He tells us how to handle the problems and the struggles of living together in family. Here's what the scripture says. This is from Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 through 17. This is Jesus speaking, and here's what he says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And if you don't understand what a Gentile and a tax collector is to the first century Jew, that meant out of here. We don't want to have anything to do with them whatsoever have nothing to do with them. Now, this is the process. This is the plan. Jesus set this together. So I want you to understand that. And we're going to talk more about how this uh, functions and how it doesn't function and all of that here in just a moment. But I want you to understand that this is the plan. If you see someone, take note of someone who is in um, a lifestyle of sin or that has become apparent to you, You go to that person if that person has sinned against you. 
you go to that person and you try to make it right. If that person repents, that's the end of it. If that person doesn't repent, scripture says, take one or two more people with you, have that same conversation with that person. If that person repents, that's the end of it. If they do not repent, he says, then you take it to the church. If they listen to the church and repent, that's the end of it. If they do not listen to the church and they do not repent, then we have to follow suit, which is the next thing, which Jesus says, treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. Or Paul says, have nothing to do with them. It's just what it says. You can be mad. So what is the desired outcome? That's the process. That's how we do it. What are we trying to do with this whole discipline business? Here's the desired outcome. Jesus says if they uh, repent, if they listen to you, he says this phrase, you have gained a brother. This is the desired outcome. The desired outcome is restoration. The desired outcome of the entire, uh, all of the universe is restoration. You see, the fall of man happens in Genesis, and we read that story of how we separated ourselves from God. The rest of the book is about us getting back together with God and how he is making that happen. Restoration is the thing. And so church discipline, it's all about restoration. It's all about gaining that brother. Secondly, not only is it about that, it's about the unity in the body of believers. You see, when there's sin in the camp, to use an Old Testament phrase, there's usually conflict within the body. And when there's conflict within the body, and we collectively as a group of people working together to follow after Christ to the best of our ability, sharpening each other as we do so, so that we can be better as we go about all of those things, when there is conflict, then there is struggle. And that isn't easy to do what Christ wants us to do because we're battling all of these battles internally. Now, the phrase sin in the camp actually comes from an Old Testament story about a time when um, God told uh, the children of Israel, I love the Bible, is it the children of Israel? I feel like, let me get my flannel graph out and teach that. You guys remember that? When God told the Israel, he said, I want you to go into this uh, town and you're going to destroy them. And when I say destroy them, I mean kill all of it. Kill everybody, burn everything down, plow it up so it looked like it never existed ever. And I know a lot of you just got squeamish about that too. God said that? Yes. It's in the Old Testament. Look it up. He said, don't take anything, nothing. One of the guys, as he's going through town, doing all the things that God asked him to do, found a suit, a suit of clothes. There's no one in the room wearing a suit today. I'm so proud of you. He finds a suit of clothes. It's Babylonian garment. It's made of silk. It's ornate. It's all of the things, man. He loves it. He says, this isn't going to hurt anything. This one thing is not going to hurt anything. So he folds it up. He packs it in his suitcase. He sticks it on his donkey. They go on about their business. Wherever they go, uh, I'm putting in a lot of details that probably aren't in scripture, but you get with the idea. He gets there. He finds a nice safe place in his tent. He digs a little hole. He puts it in a nice box. He buries it. The next battle that they go into, Israel is defeated. Moses is like, what, 
What happened? And God instructs him and says, there's sin in the camp. Somebody stole something that they weren't supposed to take. So as a result of the one man's sin, the whole group suffered. And then, of course, when he was found out, it wasn't good for him either. The point that I'm trying to make there is, is that when there's sin in the camp, there's conflict. And conflict breeds contempt with one another. Contempt with one another breeds to division. Division breeds to all other kinds of problems. This is the purpose of church discipline is that we live in the peace of Christ. We live in the peace of Christ and then that brings unity as we are all living and in him and not in our own flesh. Let's talk now about the modern danger of church discipline. The original church or the church here in the first century, not the original church, but the church in the first century here, this was all brand new to them, having these difficult conversations with each other and trying to live in this community together. All of this was brand, brand new to them, but they understood it and to the best of their ability carried it out sometimes, and I'm sure sometimes they didn't carry it out. In our modern society, because of the way that we have set church up, the way that we do church, it creates some difficulties for us uh, and our modern sensibilities and the way that society uh, has, ooh, I was going to use the word infiltrated, but I don't want to trigger it that direction, how society has influenced the way we think about each other and the church has led us to do these two things that I'm about, about to point out to you, which I call the modern danger of church discipline. The first danger is that we take too much action. We take too much action. So typically, and so I'm going to tell you some stories from my life now about church discipline. Uh, Names have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty, uh, locations, all of those kinds of things. But these are real events that took place that I was a part of. And I want you to understand how sometimes we take too much action. And these two kind of dovetail together, but typically when we think about church discipline in the modern age, what we think about is someone who has um, egregiously sinned to such a degree that the whole church is immediately aware of this sin. Now there's hundreds of other sins, thousands of other sins that are committed on a daily basis by everyone in the church, but nobody's paying any attention to those at all. But here's this one really egregious sin that everybody can see. Now we see that and our immediate response to that is to nip that in the bud, as Barney Fife used to say. You guys don't know who Barney Fife is? That's the nine o'clock service. I know you guys are. (laughs) We take too much action. We take too much action. It's so easy for us to do it. It's a tendency to sidestep the process and jump right to the end goal. There's even a term for it for those of you that grew up in the South or the Southeast or in church all of your lives, uh, particularly in the uh, evangelical camp. I'll throw that word out there big and bold. When you may have heard it, you may not have heard it, it's called being churched. Anybody ever heard that term? That guy got churched. Now you would think that if you got churched that that was a good thing. 
I got churched. I got brought into this group. We're family now. No, it's not good. Being churched means that you have been ostracized, that you have been disowned, that you have been kicked out. Usually when that happens in the modern church, they've skipped all of the steps. Nobody went to that person privately. Nobody went to that person with two or three others. The church wasn't brought into that conversation. As a matter of fact, we went straight to the penalty phase and just kicked these people out of church. I'm going to give you an illustration of how we can take too much action. A long time ago, I was a youth pastor. Can you guys ever see that? I don't like teenagers. Sorry, guys. I love you guys. That's my crew up there, man. A long time ago, I was a youth pastor. And... uh, not for not very long into my tenure as a youth pastor, this young lady walked into my office uh, and sat down and uh, informed um, us, me and MJ, that uh, she was with child. She was about four, 15, 16. So that's tough. That's a tough spot to be in. Um, we talked with her, prayed with her. She was very repentant of the whole situation that got her in that way. We talked with her mother. She was, comes from a single um, parent household. We talked with her mother. We, uh, as a group, uh, surrounded her with love and compassion, uh, helping her to uh, you know, carry the baby to term and uh, uh, delivering of this life and help them put everything together to do uh, all of these things. And I thought we were... Good to go. We did exactly what we were supposed to do. Um, But because, as you may or may not know, pregnancy um, is sometimes hard to hide. And so other people saw that all of this was happening and there was some fervor in the church and people were upset about it. And so it there was a lot of back and forth um, and a decision was made that this young girl needed to publicly repent of her sin, uh, so that everybody could be fully aware uh, that she was repentant. So, and I don't say this proudly or to tell you that this is the way that it should be done. I'm just telling you this is what happened. Didn't hit me like this in the first service. We brought her up on the stage, made her confess her sin, and repent. And from an outward expression, all of the people in the congregation loved on her, accepted all of those things. But you know what she felt? She felt shame, and she felt unloved. And shortly after she left the church, her mother left the church, the extended family around them left the church, and we lost part of our body and an opportunity to love and care for this child that was coming into the world. That's too much action. You see, she came into the office repented, it was finished. We just needed to love and take care of her. But we didn't. 
We have to be careful as a church not to jump to the end and not to take too much action. The flip side of this is just as harmful. Sometimes we take too much action. Sometimes we take no action. And when we take no action, what I mean by that is that uh, these sins, whether they're egregious and visible to the entire congregation or whether they're smaller or simpler, they're not addressed And then it begins to grow and it begins to fester. And then people, again, like I said earlier, begin to do what is right in their own eyes. And no one is holding each other accountable. There's nobody having hard conversations with each other. From a leadership to uh, someone not in leadership or brother to sister in the pew, nobody's having those conversations. And we are all just running willy-nilly. And what we end up being is no longer a church but a country club. Christ is not lifted up. He is not praised. The gospel is not shared. And all that we're doing is trying to make each other feel good about the garbage that we have in our lives. That's what happens when we take no action. You have to understand when we talk about church discipline, our minds immediately go to punishment. And in our current society, we feel like I can't judge. Who am I to judge? You've heard that all your life, right? You're a Christian. God said, do not judge. Judge not lest ye be judged. That gets quoted a lot. Gets quoted at me. But in this context of the church, as a family, I'm not judging you. I'm trying to help you. I'm not trying to harm you or punish you. The word discipline immediately brings that to mind. When I was a kid and I was growing up, I was disciplined. They called it, well, this is what I called it, I got a whooping. Did you guys get whoopings? Some of y'all got whoopings. Some of y'all didn't get whoopings, but you should have got whoopings. So when we think about discipline, I don't know what they do with little kids today. My, my sons are all grown. Uh, I, do you guys have like a rational, compassionate thought with them and just be like, hey, listen, um, let's think through this guy. You know, he's two. He's not thinking through it, man. He just wants to punch somebody. If we take no action, it's just as if we're parenting and just letting everybody run amok. We have to take action. That's the modern danger. So here comes the the question that I love to ask. We've had this conversation about what all this is and what all this means and all of that. So the question that you should be asking yourself, and if you're not, I'll ask it for you and you can go, yeah, that's a good question. So what? So what? What does all of this mean? What is this church discipline? And what does all of that mean? Here's two questions from the question that you should ask yourself. And hopefully that'll help us move forward uh, together as a church and as individuals. The first question is this. Have you welcomed the message of the gospel? Have you welcomed the message of the gospel? When I was growing up in the church, and you've probably heard this, and you've probably heard me say this, um, the gospel message, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is applied to our lives Uh, when we repent of our sins and receive Christ as Lord and Savior. Uh, And that's an event that happened when I was 17. And so now I can take that and I can leave it in the box that it's in and I can set it up on the shelf and I can go on about my business. 
But the reality of it is, is that the gospel does do everything that I just said, but it also impacts every single day of my life in every single way and every single aspect. When Paul writes and says, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, that's the gospel. Am I going to have orange juice for breakfast or milk? You say, God doesn't care about that. Yeah, he does. One of those is going to bring him glory and honor. One of those is not. I'm not going to fight you on which one it is, but bovine juice. (laughs) That was dumb. I'm sorry. Have you welcomed the message of the gospel? Is it a part of your everyday life? Do you apply it when it applies to you? When there's troubles and struggles, the gospel is there. It's what leads us and guides us and directs us. It holds on to us. It is the gospel that does all of those things. Have you welcomed the message of the gospel? Finally, this next question. Are you open to correction and instruction? Are you open to correction and instruction? Or do you think you've got this all figured out? Right? One of the first things I really knew in my life, and I mean, I really knew it, and I do have this 100% figured out, is that I do not know everything. As a matter of fact, I don't know much of anything. So I am always open to correction and instruction, or I pray to be. Sometimes I have a haughty spirit and I don't want to hear what you have to say. Are you that way? I am. And sometimes we need to really have this and understand it about correction and instruction because this is how church discipline really functions and really works. Instead of jumping to the end and trying to church somebody or discipline them or punish them or to throw them out, it's about having those conversations. When you're standing out here in the lobby and you see a man talking to his wife or his children in a way that he should not be talking to his wife and children, very gently as his brother, men, go to him and say, hey, don't do that. When you see all of these sins that aren't giant, ginormous sins that are very uh, apparent to everybody, but we all are involved in them, right? The illustration that I gave you was an unwed pregnancy. That became very apparent very quickly about exactly what was going on. But in that same room, there were gossips and backbiters and busybodies that were not being addressed. Do you follow me? I think my thing just fell off. Am I still good? All right. I'm trying to wrap this up because I'm already over time. Be open to correction and instruction. Receive those hard words from your brothers and your sisters and be repentant and be ready to receive that. Do you understand what I'm saying? Be open to correction and instruction. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would give us that spirit of humility, that we would be able to um, hear with our ears and with our heart those things that are called out to us, that we might be willing to uh, repent and to Uh, receive that correction. 
Lord, we pray that today has been honoring to you. That as we learn these truths uh, from your word, Father, we pray that you would uh, convict us of our sin. That you would empower us and embolden us to walk in your spirit. Lord, we pray that you've changed us, made us more like you. And Father, we say these things in Jesus' name. Amen.